All right, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. It's great to see you. Thank you for being here Sunday after Christmas, final Sunday of 2020. I think that warrants a, a great big celebration. Amen. Let's get it done with. On to 2021. It is really good to see you. Really good to, to have one last Sunday with you here together. Uh, every, every Christmas for me, uh, I think it's because I'm a guy in my 30s. Every Christmas I get tools. Uh, I don't know if some of you guys get tools for Christmas. Pretty easy gift uh, to get somebody. Power tools, wrench sets, so on. Um, but to be honest, I'm not a big tool guy. Like I don't have this massive tool collection. I don't really work on things around the house. I don't work on my cars. Um, and so for a lot of time, when I, when I get tools, uh, you know, I'm thankful, but I, I also, because I don't love working on my house, whenever I do have to use my tools, I'm kind of annoyed by it, you know? So I, for the most part, look at my power, power tools with disdain. They sit there collecting dust. Uh, this year I got some tools from uh, my dad, but they were tools that I could use on my bike. And so this is my monthly cycling illustration. You're welcome. Um, but the tools that I use on my bike are like in a totally different category. I always know where they are. They're well kept. They're clean. You know, I know how to use them. I'm always happy about getting more tools. And the reason for it is because I, I love what these tools are associated with. You know, this is my, my hobby, my passion, cycling. And so I like using the tools. Jessie is this way with her crafting stuff. She loves crafting. And so the right kind of paper matters to her. You know, the right kind of fabric, the right paper cutters, and so on. Uh, and having the right tools and knowing how to use them is essential to life. And when you're caught up in something that you really care about, having the right tools uh, makes a huge difference. Now, in our spiritual lives, we have tools as well. See what I did there? Classic introduction. Gotcha. That's preaching 101. In our spiritual lives, we use tools as well. What we're looking at today is using the Psalms, the book of the Psalms in the Old Testament, using the Psalms as tools for prayer. This whole year, we've been focused on a theme of renewal seeking prayer. And so being the very last Sunday of the year, we're going to focus on prayer one last time. We're sort of in between two series. We just finished a series called God's Heart for Renewal. We're going to do a mini series on worship. Casey and I will teach on worship over the next two Sundays. And then we're going to do a really long series in Ephesians starting January 17th. And so this final sermon kind of stands alone. And my, my plan for this morning, it's actually a little bit less of a sermon and it's more of like a lab course you would have in a university. You've had lectures all year. This is something of a lab on prayer. And so Eugene Peterson, in his book called Answering God, which is my favorite book on the Psalms, he describes the Psalms as these tools for prayer. He writes, in the business of being human, tools are required. Some tools are made of wood, some of metal, some of words. Prayer is a tool that is made mostly of words. All tools are essential. The plow for farming, the book for learning, pots for cooking, prayers for believing. We live well or badly by means of the tools we have and how well we use them. Now he adds later on that prayers are tools, but with this clarification, prayers are not for doing or forgetting, but for their, they're for being and becoming. And so how to use the Psalms as tools, I think will help us in our prayer life. I want to try to, to walk us through a, a psalm, and it, it could have been any psalm. We're going to look at Psalm 73 as a way of teaching what it looks like to pray through 
Scripture, in particular to pray through the Psalms as these tools for prayer. Now, if that seems a little bit too functional or orderly or structured, that's intentional as well. You know, prayer is a very an emotional, intimate experience of, of communion with God our Father. But that doesn't mean that it shouldn't have any structure or, or organization or that we shouldn't learn how to pray. I think one of the biggest reasons why so many believers struggle to pray is that they've never really been trained in prayer. We get training, we, we study, we learn uh, anything that really matters to us, whether it's in our work or in formal education. So we, if prayer matters, if our relationship with God matters, then we should have some training in prayer. So that's why we did a whole 11-week series on prayer over the summer. So I want us to look at Psalm 73. I'm going to have it on the screen behind me. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. And I'm going to read through in several different sections. You know, normally we have you stand for the reading of God's Word and, and do it all on the front end, but I'm going to break it up into several sections so that we can go through it together. Here's verse 1. It's a psalm of Asaph. He writes, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so this is, this is a simple and a, and a traditional, traditional opening for any psalm. It's, it's what we call in a liturgical sense a call to worship. Asaph wants to open us by, by lifting our eyes to heaven, by, by looking at God our Father, by remembering who He is and expressing thanksgiving and gratitude to Him. Now, Asaph is a little bit of background. Asaph is one of the main psalm writers. 2 Corinthians references him as a seer and a contemporary of David's. Nehemiah includes him in a similar way. And so we get the impression that during David's kingship over Israel, Asaph is essentially the worship pastor. He's the one who is leading them in these hymns, whether they're written by David or he's written them himself. These psalms were originally composed to be used in community. And so God's people would gather at the temple for worship, and they would use these psalms both as prayers and as songs. And so they're not primarily meant for individual use, but for community use. That's why we so often just sing through a psalm in our services. At the same time, what's beautiful about the psalms is that they follow the form of poetry or of song, so that they're far more easy to memorize, especially in an oral culture as, as the Old Testament was where people aren't reading and writing on a regular basis. Instead, they can memorize these lengthy psalms through the use of song. And so that's what we have in this place here. Now, I think Psalm 73, it's opening in verse 1, is a perfect place for us to begin all of our prayers with a sort of call to worship. Surely God is good. He is good all the time. And we begin not with ourselves. We begin not with our feelings or even with our needs, but we begin with God who He is, who He is for us. Now, often if you're in a crisis, if you're struggling, if you're completely overwhelmed, you can begin right where you are. You can start by just pouring out your heart and your emotion to God. That's fine, and there is examples of that in the Psalms as well. But my goal this morning is to, to teach us how to pray when we're not in crisis, to, to prepare us for the crisis and the times where we're totally overwhelmed in life. If your prayer life is only reactionary to crisis, you might always find yourself only praying in those moments. But rather, what we want to do is have a more proactive, more powerful, more intentional prayer life. And so I want to encourage you to begin here where Asaph begins, with who God is and what He's done for us. 
Now, verses 2 and 3, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, this is Asaph basically setting the theme for the rest of the psalm. And if you notice, it's a confession of sin. So just like we do in our own singing and liturgy, we move from a call to worship to a confession of sin. Asaph, right out of the gate, will say that God is never changing. He's always good. But as for me, I am always changing. I am not always good. I am up and down. I am not exactly like God. And so this is an honest admission of, of guilt and of wrongdoing. And he's, and he's very specific. Confession of sin in the scriptures is always specific. It's tangible. It's not just a general confession. You know, one of the things I, I love about mature Christians is their ability to be specific and particular when they're asking for forgiveness or confessing sin to another person. Often some people will, will do the opposite. They'll say, well, I know I'm a sinner. I'm a horrible person. I know that. I just don't think I'm wrong in this particular situation. But somebody who's mature, somebody who understands the dynamics of confession, they can be specific and particular. And that's what we see in Asaph here. Now, we can relate to Asaph's sin, envy. He looks to the arrogant, he looks to the wicked, and he sees that they're getting ahead. Now, I've definitely felt this. I've felt this in my soul. I've felt this in my prayers. We look to those who have no regard to God. They don't care for other people. They have no concern for the poor and needy. They seem to just be doing life completely how they want to, and it seems like it's working out. Like it seems like a lot more fun. You get more power. You get more control if you just throw away God's word and live however you want to live. And so that's what Asaph is doing. He's, he is complaining to God about the success of the wicked. Now he's going to go on like this for some time. Uh, follow with me in verse 4. Here's what he says about the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Now, this third movement of the psalm, it's called a lament. Really, it's, it's a complaint to God where you bring the brokenness of the world, your confusion about the way the world works, and you lay it at God's feet. It's really a, it's an angry prayer. It's a way of bringing things that you're upset about to God himself. And you may have learned at some point in your Christian life that that's not the way you should do it. You shouldn't be angry before God. You should learn to kind of clean that up or put it into compartments. And then when it's all dealt with, then you can bring just your thanksgiving before God. But that kind of prayer, that kind of approach to God, it totally disregards the Psalms. So many of the Psalms are prayers of lament. In a lot of ways, Psalm 73, it reminds us of the book of Job or, or Jeremiah's book, Lamentations, or of Ecclesiastes. 
where there's this wrestling with God over what's going on in the world. That's what I love about the Psalms. They're brutally honest. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully encouraging you in a certain structure and in order to your prayers, but it's not to minimize emotion in your praying, but rather it's to give you a place to bring all that emotion before God. If you actually follow the pattern of the Psalms, you will pour out everything that is on your mind, everything that is in your heart, and you will bring that directly to God in all of its fullness, because that's what the Psalms do. They don't wait until everything's figured out or in its place. I mean, some of the Psalms don't even bring any kind of resolution whatsoever. Psalm 88 ends with, darkness is my closest friend. Nothing is tied up. Nothing is neat and tidy. It's just a soul's prayer to God. And so your prayers can't be too honest for God. No matter how advanced you are in prayer, how closely you walk with the Lord, your prayers can always be more honest. God invites us to pour out whatever it is in our hearts. Bring it to the Lord. Whatever's on your mind, whatever you're struggling with, if you're mad at God, let Him know. He can handle it. He invites it. He already knows everything that's going on in your heart, so you might as well bring it to Him in relationship. Now, verse 13, Asaph continues, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. Now Asaph is a, is a godly person, and this is how he feels. I mean, honestly, I think these verses are a little dramatic, you know? It's like, Asaph, really? All day long I've been afflicted? Every morning brings new punishments? Like, it's starting to sound like in early 2000s, like, you know the emo rock songs, you know, Iron and Wine? It's like, we get it. Everything's awful. I'm starting to feel terrible, though. This is essentially what Asaph's doing. He's over the top in expressing how, he, how, how negative he feels about the world that's under God's control. But it's how he feels. Even if it's not accurate, it's how he feels, and he brings that before God. And God doesn't just allow it. He invites it. Now, there's a certain t- turning point here in verse 15. We'll continue on. He says, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Now this is a powerful image. Nothing was making sense to Asaph. He looks out and he sees that the wicked are thriving. Those who have no regard for God are getting ahead in life when the righteous are suffering, when their troubles and afflictions are multiplying. And he brings that anger before God, and in fact, he enters the sanctuary, which has two meanings. It's both a literal temple that you would go to for worship, and so he enters the presence of God's people, he enters community, and he begins to have a change of mind. In the second sense, the sanctuary represents the presence of God for Israel. 
And so it's both true that he enters into community and he enters into the presence of God and things begin to find their place. The sanctuary of God, it's, it's also called the face of God or, or in Latin, the Coram Deo. It's the white, hot, burning, passionate presence of God. And this has a healing effect on the way that Asaph views the world. He says, nothing made sense until I came into the presence of God and the presence of other believers. Now, Charles Spurgeon has a three-volume set on the Psalms called The Treasury of David. It's my favorite book on the Psalms, and I know I've already said that. But he writes on Psalm 73, Asaph's heart gazed within the veil. He stood there by the thrice holy God. Thus he shifted his point of view, and apparent disorder resolved itself into harmony. In prayer and the presence of God, especially with other believers, disorder begins to resolve itself into harmony. In this section, if you think about it, it's kind of an assurance of forgiveness in the way that we do it in our liturgy. Asaph knows that he's forgiven. He knows that he can freely enter the presence of God. He knows that having his sins forgiven, he can approach God as a child would. He remembers as he's in God's presence the blessing of walking with God, the destruction that comes on those who reject God in his ways. His heart begins to melt. And this is really a great sort of theology or understanding of sin and, and how it works when we look at this psalm. I remember I had a, a pastor in, in college who would say, you know, he always wore a three-piece suit and he said, sin is never fun. Never. Don't even try it. And then me and my college friends would look around like, no, I think it actually is fun. I think that's the whole point of sin is that it's really fun. The reality is, and, and we don't have to be you know, dishonest about the fact that sin is often very appealing. That's the nature of sin. The reality from a biblical standpoint of, is that all sin eventually fails you completely. All right, so you move further and further away from God. You position yourself for, for judgment. It always comes back on itself. When you live for yourself, you get to a point in life where you no longer have anyone else around you. If you indulge in all the things that the world has to offer, they have this addictive aspect to them where finally they have totally overcome your life and you are under their control. And so Spurgeon writes, Asaph's eye was fixed too much on one thing. He saw their present and forgot their future. He saw their outward display and forgot their soul's discomfort. Sin is fun only for a moment, but then when the, when the sun rises, when the light comes flooding in, we see how awful it is. We feel the discomfort of our souls. And Asaph comes to realize this in the presence of God. Now, in a biblical sense, this is wisdom, and, and this psalm is generally considered a, in the, the wisdom genre of psalms. And it's a wisdom psalm because of Asaph's reflections on this broken world and God's role in it. Wisdom, biblically, is the ability to operate with the mind of God in complex situations. There's times where you know exactly what to do if something is, is biblically forbidden, if it's against the law, if it's going to hurt or exploit somebody, then you don't do it. However, wisdom is where things are complex. 
Wisdom is the ability to have the mind of God in, in those gray situations where there's not a right or a wrong right off the surface, where there's no, no verse to tell you exactly what to do. And one of the consistent illustrations of the Bible is that wisdom always takes the long view. So the best question about anything is not, is this sinful or not? The best question is, does this bring glory to God? And if I continued on this, this trajectory, would it lead me closer and closer to conformity to God's image? Is this consistent with the way of Jesus? So over and over, the Bible is pointing us to take the long view, play out how this goes over years, over decades, over centuries. Now, verse 23. These are some of my favorite verses in the psalm. He continues, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now this is a beautiful second half to this powerful and, and personal, honest psalm. We've been led through a call to worship, through confession of sin, assurance of forgiveness, and now he's essentially leading us into communion. He's leading us into to an abiding relationship, an, an intimate fellowship with God himself. C.S. Lewis has a, has a book called Reflections on the Psalms, which is my favorite book on the Psalms. And he writes, A man can't always be defending the truth. There must be time to feed on it. Now, our, our church is not one that gets caught up in, in theological debates and, and secondary issues, thankfully, but my prayer for us is that we would be able to defend the truth when we need to, but primarily each and every day we'd be able to feed on it. Earth has nothing that will fully and forever satisfy us. Our strength, our abilities, they're always declining. Our health is slowing and struggling. Our youthfulness, our beauty, it's all fading and wearing out. Many of our relationships will cause hurt and pain. And yet communion with God is the only thing that can continue to grow and increase with time and age. Become more strong, more, more vibrant with time. Jesse was reading something this week, and, and there was a person who had been saying that COVID has been so hard on everybody, in, in part, Everybody is so diminished in their energy and strength and capacity. And then when they go to one of their friends or family members for help, that person is just as exhausted and overwhelmed and spread thin as they are. So nobody's able to really help one another because everybody just has this diminished capacity and nothing left to offer. I'm, I'm sure you felt that over the last nine months. And we realize it's, it's as if we think there's no self-replenishing source of energy and strength and help in the world. Like we can only go to one another, or we can only muster up the strength within us. We've got to figure out how we're going to do this on our own. And then we're struck over and over. Wait. God is our help. God is our, our refuge. My flesh, my heart, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
And so it's important to remember what God has promised and, and what he hasn't promised. God has not promised that we won't go through hard things in life, that we won't face suffering and affliction and temptation, oppression, persecution. In fact, he promises we will face all these things. What he has promised is that he will be with us through everything. And so it's why almost every single psalm out of 150, almost every single psalm references God as our strength, our help, our deliverer. Whatever word that's used there, it's to call to mind that our strength, our hope, our everything comes from God himself. Spurgeon says, Asaph had been driven far out to sea, but he casts anchor in the old port. Now, two verses left, verse 27. A sort of benediction to this psalm. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is Asaph's summary, his, his closing statement, his reminder to himself. Those far from God will perish. But for us, for the people of God, it's good to be near Him. He alone is the refuge. Having Him alone is more than having everything else. And so I love that Asaph closes by saying that I will, I will tell of God's great deeds. I will declare the works of God. And Spurgeon, one last time, he writes on this psalm, He who is willing to declare the works of God will always have wonders to declare. The Psalms have this way of inviting us to honesty. Bring your feelings, bring your junk, bring your, your disorderliness of your, your prayers. Just bring it all and pour it out before God. And this structure to the Psalms, it doesn't diminish honesty and emotion. It, it cultivates it. it. It enables it. It invites it. Bring everything into the sanctuary of God and let him have it. Cast your anxieties on the Lord, 1 Peter says, for he cares for you. And the Psalms are our tools for prayer, for worship, for life with God. And so may we, may we learn to use them, may we learn to love them, and they'll serve us for the rest of our lives, and then even after that, into eternity. Let's pray.